The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14 in the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Now those two verses come, as many present will recall, from last Sunday evening, in a paragraph that runs from the 12th verse to the 17th verse in this great and mighty chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. In the first 11 verses, the prophet has been delivering his message, which is a great synopsis, a summary, if you like, of the Christian message of the Christian gospel. He's been giving us the exhortation to proclaim it abroad as he was himself commanded to proclaim it. And he has been describing the character and the greatness of this salvation that God is going to give. Beginning with the famous words, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that our warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Very well. He has made the great proclamation. He has announced God's message of salvation. Then having done that in this twelfth verse, he turns to a new section in which his great concern, it seems to me, is to help us and to aid us to believe that message. The help is needed because of the staggering character of the message, the proclamation. And therefore he comes, I say, to our help and to our aid. It all seems so incredible, so impossible. This talk about the glory of the Lord being revealed, this statement that all flesh shall see it together. This uh, amazing statement, Behold thy God. And yet the other aspect that constantly comes with it, the suggestion of the humiliation and so on. Now we begin considering the help which the prophet here gives us last Sunday evening as we first looked at this paragraph from verse 12 to verse 17. And I suggested this. That all our difficulties ultimately arise from one common source and origin, and that is our ignorance of God. It is our failure to realize who and what God is that ultimately accounts for every rejection of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. So the prophet, as he comes to our aid, starts by telling us something about God. And I suggested that he said three things about God in this one paragraph. The first thing he emphasizes is the greatness and the might and the majesty of God. He puts it like this. 
who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who's done that? The answer is God has done that. That's God. And then you remember how he goes on to say that before God the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. All nations before him are as nothing and are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Our real trouble, my friends, is we've no conception of the greatness and the majesty of God. God, the creator, the maker, the artificer, the sustainer of everything that is, the everlasting, almighty God. And then he went on to emphasize the glory of God. He says, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. If we offered the whole world to God, we wouldn't be offering enough. His glory is so great and so transcendent. Here again is something that we are tragically ignorant of. We don't realize the glory of God. Now, all our problems, I was suggesting, with regard to the Christian faith, with regard to the Christian faith in general, and all its particular statements, they all rarely come out of the fact that we're not clear about those two things. Any difficulty anybody who's present tonight may be in uh, with respect uh, to miracles, with respect to the incarnation, with respect uh, to the doctrine of the atonement, the sacrificial death of the Son of God. People who say they can't understand that, they can't see the necessity of that. The real trouble is they know nothing about the glory of God. You see, if you cut down all the trees of Lebanon and burned them all and cut, killed all the animals on the mountain and offer the whole lot together as a burnt sacrifice and offering, it isn't enough. The glory, the holiness, the greatness of God are such that he demands a perfect offering and there's only one that is sufficient, the one that has been offered, his only begotten Son, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. Now then, says this man, if you're in trouble and if you're in difficulty, stop for a moment and realize who's given this message. If, if you stagger at it, if you stumble, if it seems so immense and so great, just remember that that is the one from whom it's come, God. And then, I indicated at the close that the third thing that he tells us about God is one that follows quite inevitably and quite logically from the other two statements. And that's the one to which I'm anxious to call attention this evening. I put it in a phrase like this. The phrase doesn't matter, but if you like to have it in a succinct form, it is this. The inscrutability of God's ways and of God's mind. Now here it is put in detail. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or been his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Who did so? That's his way of saying the ways of God are 
Beyond our understanding, they're inscrutable. They're eternal like his power and like his glory. Well, now that, I say, is the thing to which I'm anxious to call attention tonight. Because I suppose that of all the difficulties with regard to believing and accepting the Christian faith, there is none which is quite so common as this. It's always been a trouble. It's always been a problem. Even some of God's greatest saints, when God spoke to them and gave promises to them, they couldn't believe it. It seemed impossible. God's thoughts and God's ways and God's word have always staggered me. They found the thing almost incredible because it's incomprehensible. And the same is true. You'll find it running right through the Old Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, you find precisely the same thing. I think I indicated last Sunday evening that even Mary, the mother of our Lord herself, gave an exhibition of this when she said to the angel, what you're saying to me is impossible, it can't happen. It, this kind of thing can't happen. How can I thus give birth to a child and I'm not married? And the answer came back with God, nothing shall be impossible. Well, now there it is. And here it is put in this interesting manner for us here by the prophet. Now, in the New Testament, there are two places in which this word of the prophet is quoted and in which it is expounded. And therefore, if we are anxious to understand exactly what it is the prophet means, we can do nothing better than consider those two places in which these words are quoted. The first is in the epistle to the Romans in the 11th chapter. This is how I read, starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's one of them. Now there, you remember, the apostle is concerned about the ways of God with respect to mankind. He is dealing with that profound difficulty, uh, which he argues out in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of that mighty epistle to the Romans, uh, how God seems to have gone back on his promises. He's chosen the children of Israel, yet how few of them, uh, as it were, are believing the gospel, and how many Gentiles. How is all this to be reconciled? That was the problem. And the apostle works out his mighty answer, with its incomparable logic, I say again. And then, having said it all, that's how he ends. I've said all this, he says, in effect, but oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. That's the thing. We can but dimly look at it and grasp it, understand it up to a point, but the thing itself is beyond us, past finding out. I don't stay with that this evening because I'm anxious rather to consider the other place in which this same statement is quoted, namely in that second chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, which we read together at the beginning. It's there in the last verse. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may 
instruct him. Now, in this uh, second chapter of this first epistle to the Corinthians, we have what seems to me to be an extended exposition by the inspired apostle of the very thing that was hinted at there back in that 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Here's the problem, you see. Here is God's proclamation of what he's going to do. And men can't understand it. They say, is it possible all flesh is grass and all the glory of men is the flower of the grass? How can these things be? And here's his answer. It's God, it's his power, it's his glory. And don't try to understand his ways. They're past finding out. Now then, here I say in this second chapter of 1 Corinthians, and also partly in the first chapter, which we also read at the beginning, the apostle takes up this whole question. And he did so, of course, because in a sense, he had to do so. Paul was constantly meeting this difficulty and this problem as he preached the gospel to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks were very intelligent people. They were very clever people. They were the philosophers. They, it were, Greece was the home of the great philosophers. And all these Greeks were interested in these matters. Of course, what the Greek wanted above everything else was wisdom. And that's why Paul keeps on arguing so much about wisdom. The Greek was a man who said, now this world has gone wrong, there are troubles and there are problems, and what we need is wisdom. And he was always ready to listen to a man who said, look here, I've got a theory which can explain everything to you, and I've got a plan of a utopia which will solve your problems for you. The Greeks were seeking for wisdom. To the Greek, the greatest thing in the world was knowledge and understanding. And whenever he was confronted by any statement, he asked at once, well now, what is this? What is this philosophy? How does this explain things? What kind of understanding does this give to me? And do you remember how the Apostle Paul arrived in that country and began to preach his message? And we've got a graphic description of him doing so in Athens, the great metropolis of all this kind of activity. And do you remember what they said about him after listening to him for a while? They said, what will this babbler say? The whole thing seemed to them to be utterly ridiculous. They couldn't understand. As Paul himself reminds the Corinthians, it was foolishness. It seemed to be unutterable folly. It seemed to them to be nonsense. Because the apostle, you see, just stood before them. And what did he do? Well, he tells us he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything about the man and his message and his preaching seemed to them to be utterly ridiculous. He didn't adopt the pose of their rhetoricians and their orators. He wasn't careful about his language and his diction and the balance of his phrases. He didn't conform to the schools. He seemed to be a poor speaker. And they didn't realize that. They said his presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. You see, he didn't speak to them with the wisdom of men. He wasn't ornate, and he hadn't his sermon dotted with quotations and apt allusions, and so on. It wasn't a work of art. It wasn't uh, the kind of thing to which they'd been so accustomed from their own philosophers and their great orators, their professional orators. And as for his message, 
Instead of considering the rival schools of thought and putting up the theories on one side and then criticizing them and evaluating them and then putting up the theories and the ideas and the concepts of the other school and doing the same and then giving a balanced judgment, this man seems to have stood before them and just uh, told them a story. He told them something that had happened. His message was about someone who was a carpenter, a Jew, not a Greek, a Jew. And especially it was how this person had died upon a cross, was crucified in apparent weakness and buried in a grave. But Paul went on to say that he rose again. And the whole thing to these people was monstrous. It was ridiculous. Where was their philosophy in this? Where was their understanding? Where was the wisdom in this kind of thing? This was rubbish. It was folly. It was something that to them was quite intolerable. That was the charge that they kept on bringing against the apostle. And it's quite clear from the context that there were even some members of the church at Corinth who were a little bit tempted to bring the same charge against him, having listened to certain other people. Now what is the apostle's answer to all this? That's the interesting thing. Well, Paul's answer is this. It is not to say that the gospel is itself irrational or unintelligent. It is not to say, oh yes, you are great philosophers and you are seeking wisdom. Of course, I have no wisdom to give you. I'm simply an emotionalist. I'm simply a sentimentalist. I'm simply here to play lightly upon your surface emotions and get you to do what I want you to do. That wasn't what he said at all. He said the exact opposite. Far from agreeing to the suggestion that he had no wisdom to offer, the apostle says the position is, is in reality the exact reverse. He says, you don't realize it, but I was offering you and preaching to you the only true wisdom. But you know, says Paul, it isn't the sort of wisdom that you know and can understand. It is God's wisdom. That's the trouble, says the apostle, that's the difficulty. That the wisdom I presented to you isn't man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. So you see, the trouble is, says the apostle, not that I'm not preaching wisdom, but that my wisdom is so exalted because it is from God that you don't understand it, and you think it's folly. The difficulty is not in the message, it's in you. It is your sheer inability to understand it and to grasp it. It's your finite attitude. It is your finite condition. You say it's folly, says the apostle, but it's only folly to you because it's so great. Now this is something, of course, which is absolutely vital to an understanding of the Christian faith and its message. Sometimes its own protagonists have done it a very grave injustice. The way to answer the wisdom of the world that comes with its criticism of the Christian faith and the Christian gospel is not to say, well, of course, we've got no wisdom. We are just ordinary people. We live in the realm of the emotions. The way to do it, I say, is not that, but is rather to turn on them and to say, do you want wisdom? Well, here is wisdom. 
by the side of which all your vaunted and boasted wisdom is nothing but unutterable folly. Now, actually, the prophet Isaiah goes on to say that in his 40th chapter, and God willing, we hope to go on to consider that. I leave that for tonight in order that I may give you a positive exposition of what the great apostle really says. Listen to him. Howbeit, he says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Now then, notice, yet, not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. The princes and their philosophies come to nothing. But, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, and so on. Now that is the answer. Now let me try to put this to you in the form of a number of simple propositions. Is there anyone, I wonder, listening to me who is not a Christian and who doesn't believe this gospel? And is that your reason for doing so? Do you say, now, I, I've been accustomed to thinking things out. I, I've been accustomed to accepting things only as I can understand them. I've been trained always that I must never commit intellectual suicide. That it's a very wrong thing for a man to submit himself to something that he doesn't understand. All my training, all my knowledge and learning in life and in the world has taught me to concentrate and to think and to meditate. I don't go into a business, I don't buy anything unless I know what I'm doing, I don't believe anything. Now that's my position, says the man. Now you are gospel, he says. Comes to me and tells me things of a type and of a character such as I've never heard before. And I can't understand it, and it therefore seems to me to be folly. It seems to be unutterable foolishness. And because he can't understand, he rejects it in total. Now, what's the difficulty with such a man? Well, I'm suggesting that it's the old difficulty which the Greeks always had when the Apostle Paul preached his gospel to them. My dear friends, the difficulty about believing the Christian message is not a matter of details, it's the matter of one's whole approach. It's your fundamental attitude towards it that matters. And I'm suggesting again tonight that the trouble with most people is that their attitude towards it, their approach to it is so utterly wrong that they cannot possibly be right at any point. Now then, let me put that in the form of a number of propositions. What is this gospel? Well, the first thing the apostle tells us about it is that it is God's wisdom. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world. That we speak the wisdom of God. Now, that's the starting point. And it must always be the starting point. I wonder whether we're all perfectly clear about this. That when we're in a meeting such as this, we are doing something which is altogether and entirely different from anything and everything that we can do in the world outside. Take all your learned societies, take all your cultural media, take all of them, put them together. Now there I say they belong to a category which does not include this. Here we are in a different realm altogether. All those derive from men. 
They are all the result of man's thought, man's so-called inspiration, man's imagination, man's gifts, man's ability. It's all right. I'm not criticizing them. They're all excellent. All I'm trying to show is this, that the gospel should never be put into series with them because it doesn't belong to them. All those things, and let us praise them, let us praise God for all human ability and everything that has ennobled life. Let's thank God for sculpture and art and music and poetry and all these things that are uplifting and elevating. They're all marvelous. They testify to the greatness of men made in the image of God. But my dear friends, don't put this amongst them. It doesn't belong there. This isn't men reaching up, it's God coming down. It's God's wisdom. It's all from God's side. That's the thing that the apostle is expounding here. That's the thing, you see, that Isaiah argued. He says it's God's thought. It's God's plan. He says no one suggested it to God. No one stood at his elbow and gave him advice. Who was God's counselor? Who told him to do these things that God has done in Christ? No man at all. There was no man with him. It was God alone and only God. Indeed, I want to go further and even say this. What God has done in the gospel excludes men altogether. It isn't even a response to men or to men's request. You see, there are so many who think that, that man turns to God and makes an appeal and makes a request, and that as the result of man's prayer, God has responded and has done something. That, I agree, would have been very wonderful, but the gospel is infinitely more wonderful. It was while we were yet enemies that God did this. It wasn't in response to our appeal. It was in spite of us, in spite of what we were, in spite of what we'd done. It is all of God. It's God's thought. It's God's plan. It's God's mind. It's God's organizing. It's God's everything. Oh, I can never emphasize this too much because it is the stumbling block. The world has thrown up its great men. Christ came down from heaven. That's it. And that's true of the whole of the gospel. Are you convinced, my friend? Do you see at the very outset and at the very beginning that you must put aside all your ordinary canons of thought and all your terms of reference and all your usual measurements? Oh, I rather like the way in which Isaiah puts it. You notice how he puts it, he put it like this, he's been talking about God measuring uh, the heavens and God weighing the mountains uh, in the scales and the hills in the balance, you remember. And then he goes on to ask a question, he says, is there anybody who can weigh the Spirit of God? He says, how foolish you are. If you can't weigh and span and measure the greatness of God, how can you possibly measure and weigh the mind of God? You're trying to do it, says the prophet, and the apostle repeats the same argument. You start by saying, now unless I understand everything fully, I'm not going to believe it. Do you realize you're trying to measure God and to comprehend him with your little pygmy mind? My dear friend, it's foolishness. If God is God, that's by hypothesis quite impossible. And we are speaking about God and the gospel is his, his thought. It's his understanding. It's his plan. It's his scheme. Can you measure it? 
Was there any man suggesting it to him? There was no such thing. It is all and altogether and entirely of God. No man has been his counselor. The thing is monstrous. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Where are your greatest philosophers? Bring them along. Let them come. Let them try to examine. Can any of them measure and weigh the mind, the spirit of God? The thing is too foolish even for an answer. Well, now that's his first statement. We preach the wisdom of God. But you notice he didn't leave it at that. He says we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom. Now what a vital statement this is again. It was almost enough to say that it was God's wisdom. But with human nature as it is, and with this craving for understanding, and this belief in the power of man's mind and philosophy to comprehend even the infinities and the eternities, the thing has got to be put very plain and beyond a peradventure. It's not only the wisdom of God because it's the wisdom of God, it's a hidden wisdom. It's a mystery. Something which is at one and the same time revealed and hidden. The mystery. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, let me divide it up. Indeed, the apostle does so for us in this second chapter of this first epistle to the Corinthians. He tells us that this mind of God, this plan of God, this great purpose of God in the gospel is something that men by nature is not even aware of. He doesn't know that there's anything happening. The average man in the world tonight is really quite ignorant about God's way of salvation. He's not aware of it. He doesn't seem to know that anything's happened. You ask him what he thinks of the things that happened nearly 2,000 years ago, he'll shrug his shoulders. The greatest thing that will ever happen in time has already taken place. Does the average person know that? No, no, he's quite unaware of it. It doesn't affect his life at all. He says he's influenced by history. The biggest thing that's ever happened in history doesn't influence him at all. Why? Well, it's a mystery to him. He doesn't understand it. It's hidden. We're all talking about history today, aren't we, and about time. But what the natural man doesn't realize is that there are two types of history. There is the history you can read about in your secular history books about kings and princes and about wars and disputes and economic changes and things like that. It's all very important. Yes, but remember there's another history running parallel with it. It's the history you find in this book, the history of redemption. The history of what God has done in this world of time. The two come together now and again, but they're running there along parallel lines. The world sees the one, it doesn't see the other. It isn't aware of this, it's not interested in it. Oh yes, we're all trying to look into the future. Is there going to be another world war, we're asking? Are certain things going to happen? My dear friend, that's quite all right. That's one history, that's secular history. But how much trouble is men giving to this other history which tells us that the day is coming, it may be soon, I don't know. When the Son of God will come back again into this world, riding the clouds of heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it's there, it's real, it's going to happen. 
But the world is not aware of this. It's hidden to it. It's living as if that thing had never happened and nothing's going to happen. It's hidden. It's a mystery. But I'll go further. I'll say even this, that when it's actually enacted before his eyes, the natural man doesn't see it. Even the princes of this world don't see it, says Paul. And when he says princes, he not only means kings and people like that, he means the great philosophers, the kings of thought, the kings in every realm of life. He says which the princes of this world, none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They looked at that person, they said, Who is this fellow, this carpenter of Nazareth, this son of Joseph? They looked at him and that's all they saw. I see other men looking at him, and this is what they say. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Two men, you see, looking at the same person. One sees a carpenter, the other sees the Lord of glory. It's a hidden wisdom. It's a mystery. As I'm going to expound still further in a moment. But you see, we must realize that all these statements are of very vital import. That even when God gives the revelation of his wisdom in a tangible form, the world doesn't see it. It doesn't recognize it. I go one step even further. The world cannot understand it and it cannot receive it because it is a mystery. Listen to the apostle. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The order to which they belong, the type of thing they really are, is such that man as he is simply cannot understand. He can't receive it even. It seems folly to him because it's different from what he's accustomed to. That's the tragedy of man in sin, that God's wisdom is folly to man and he doesn't realize that his wisdom is folly to God. So that the final statement the apostle makes about all this is this. That the work of the Holy Spirit in us is absolutely essential before we can receive this gospel. Had you realized that the gospel it says, itself says all that, my friend? Are you perhaps an unbeliever tonight because you say, well, I notice that the great men don't believe it. I notice that the notabilities are not members of the Christian church. The great scientists and the great writers of novels and the great leaders of thought, they're not practicing Christians and they're great men. They have great knowledge and great understanding. And if they don't, well, I'd better not because they are my teachers and my masters. Are you arguing like that? The reply of the apostle to that is just this, that those men, though they're great men, are absolutely blind to these things. They're natural men. Without the inspiration, the guidance, the light, and the anointing which the Holy Ghost alone can give to no man are these things sense at all. And that's what happens when a man is converted. You see, for all his life, he'd been saying rubbish, nonsense, there's nothing in it. And he dismissed it and spat upon it and cursed it. 
And suddenly he sees it all and says, this is life, this is everything. What's happened? He's got the same brain, he's got the same understanding, he's got the same faculties. Oh, I'll tell you what's happened. The Spirit of God has enlightened him. His mind has been opened to the truth. The mystery has been revealed. The Spirit is essential. Listen to the apostles' way of putting all this. He says, none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And then he uses this marvelous argument. For what man, he says, knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. This is his argument. I've got a secret in my mind. It's there in my spirit. And you can try as you will. You can be learned and clever. You can't read the secret that's in my mind. And you'll never know what my secret is until I tell you. Isn't it like that with men, argues the apostle? There are certain things right in the spirit of men. And no man can get at it. The man himself must reveal it. He says, if that is true with men, how infinitely more so is it with God. If you can't even read the mind of a man whom you know well and get at his secret that he's holding in his spirit, how can you possibly ascend into the heavens and read and understand and fathom the mind of God? He says you can't. There's only one who can understand the mind of God, that is the Spirit of God. And it is only when he reveals it to you that you'll understand it. That's the gospel method. So that this wisdom of God is indeed a hidden wisdom. It's a mystery. Don't be surprised, therefore, that all the great men, perhaps in the world, are rejecting it. Ye see your calling, brethren, says Paul, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why not? Because they trusted to their philosophy. They wanted to understand the mind of God before they'd believe it. And they can't. It's impossible. That was their folly. And such men are as blind tonight as they've ever been. As our blessed Lord said, unless he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. It's when you come and say, oh, I see it at last. It's God's thought. It's God's way. How, what a fool I've been trying to understand and insisting upon explanations. I see I must come as a child, as a suppliant. I must come empty-handed, empty-headed in a sense, and listen and receive the revelation. It's then. And then only, when you realize your utter helplessness and your need of the Spirit, that the thing becomes clear to you. Let me hurry on to one other thing. He says it was ordained before the world. He's telling us there's something about this wisdom of God. God has not been surprised by what man has done. The gospel isn't an afterthought. The biblical teaching is that before the world was founded that God had planned all this. God sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything. 
My dear friend, this world is not out of God's hand tonight. It may appear to be, but it isn't. It is in God's hand. He knows all about it. He's seen it all from eternity. It is the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery ordained before the foundation of the world. In other words, God has a plan for this world and for this life, and it's revealed in this wonderful gospel. The gospel is nothing, if you like, but God's revealed plan and way of dealing with the problem of men in sin, of dealing with the problem of the world gone lost and gone astray, which all human ingenuity and ability cannot restore. It's been trying throughout the centuries, and it can't. Now God's plan comes in, and here is God's plan. And what are the elements or the characteristics of this plan? Well, here they are. He mentions them all in but a few verses. God's wisdom. God's way of solving the problem of mankind. What is it? Well, it's first of all something that we call the incarnation. None of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the carpenter of Nazareth. No, no. Had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, this is God's wisdom. And how entirely, absolutely different it is from everything we've ever known. I look at a babe lying in a manger. Well, that's all right, you say. That's quite ordinary. There's nothing unusual about a helpless infant, a babe lying in a crib. There's nothing marvelous about that. Is that God's wisdom? Wait a minute, my friend. Who is that babe? Who is that babe who will be playing with his little toys in a few months? Do you know who he is? He's the one who can take up the aisles as a very little thing. He's been playing with the cosmos before he ever came into it. The Lord of glory, the babe of Bethlehem, the carpenter, the man who hadn't been to the schools, the apparent ignoramus, he's the Lord of glory. Now this is God's wisdom, you see. And you understand now why I've been emphasizing so much that you mustn't try to understand this. It can't be understood, it's inscrutable. Let us take our stand with Paul and say, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Lord of glory is the babe of Bethlehem, the same person. Two natures in one person. He's man, certainly, but he's God, certainly. He's perfect man, absolutely. He's perfect God, absolutely. That's what I'm preaching to you. I'm not preaching a human teacher. I'm not preaching a great man. I am preaching to you the mystery, the marvel, the miracle of the incarnation. God and men, two natures in one person, unmixed. Can you understand that? Was it some great philosopher who suggested that to God? Is that the sort of thing that men would be likely to tell God to do when he comes to save mankind? Out upon the suggestion, who hath known the mind of the Lord? The unutterable folly and impudence of men. Asking for understanding. That's gospel. The incarnation. 
God coming in the flesh, the eternal word made flesh and dwelling among us. The Lord of glory. But wait a minute, it goes on. The second mystery is death. For he argues, had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I always have a sense of, of grudge at the people who overwork the word paradox. Because it means that it's so used and so hackneyed and so cheapened that one can't use it where it ought to be used. But if you want to know a mystery, if you want to know a real paradox, here it is. The Lord of glory crucified. The word through whom and by whom all things were made and by whom they consist. Crucified in weakness. Rejected, despised of men. Buried in a grave. Are you still trying to understand? Is your mind still anxious to be able to span it all? Well, can you take it in? The Lord of glory crucified. Helpless, nailed to a tree. Crying in agony. Complaining of thirst. Dying. His body taken down, buried in a grave, and a stone rolled over the mouth of the grave. Crucifying the Lord of glory, life and death. Oh, Peter put it in a very striking phrase, you remember, in his preaching to the people at Jerusalem. When he talks about putting to death the author of life. Putting to death the author of life. My friends, this is either true, you know, or it's unutterable rubbish. It's one or the other, but that's the message which we preach. That is the Christian gospel. It isn't to tell you to live a better life and to pull yourselves together and turn over a new leaf and to come to church and things like that. No, no, it's an announcement to you that God has done this thing. He sent out, he sent forth his own son made of a woman made under the law. And he sent him to the death of Calvary's cross. And why? Well, that's the next word. He says that all this has happened unto our glory. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, unto our glory. That is God's way of salvation. That's God's way of saving us. We hadn't thought of it like that, had we? We thought we needed more education. We thought we needed more morality, pep talks. We thought we needed some great example and we could take up our stand and imitate him and follow him and say, that's what we wanted at last, we've got it. And we're going to follow this marvelous exemplar. That's our idea of salvation, isn't it? Thank God it wasn't God's. Because I can't follow his example. I can't in my own strength live the Sermon on the Mount. I can't even come up to my own standard. And I've got the problem of my past sins. They're there. It's no use turning my back. I know they're there. It's written in the record. It's all there. Before I can be saved, I've got to be delivered from my past sins. God's wisdom has found the way. 
the Lord of glory, crucified unto my glory. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's just another way of saying it. But it's a mystery, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Have you ever heard of anything like this before? That the innocent comes and dies for the guilty? That the God whom we've offended himself takes on the problem and comes in the person of his son and bears it away? Had you thought of anything like that? Had you been God's counselor? Is that the sort of thing you would have suggested to God? That's the argument of the prophet and the argument of the apostle. My dear friend, can't you see that you've got to come to this with an entirely different attitude? It's altogether from God, and it's altogether different, and it cannot be understood. It's the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery, which is only revealed by the Holy Spirit, but is revealed by him. And the last word I speak is this. Listen to him in the 12th verse now. He says, we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. It's the crowning aspect of this mystery, this marvel, this hidden wisdom. A salvation that is given for nothing, freely given. Without money and without price. Given only to those who say, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. A pauper. With nothing at all. Not a farthing, not a vestige of righteousness. Nothing, but it's freely given. Oh, Isaiah was very fond of this. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, come by without money and without price. That's it, he keeps on saying it. And here Paul is saying it. It is all freely given. And do you know this is the ultimate folly and tragedy of men? There is nothing that he objects to more about the gospel than the fact that it's freely given. Man in his pride wants to earn it. He wants to maintain his respectability. He says, I'm not a pauper yet. Our Lord said to certain men who seem to have believed on him one afternoon, if he continue in my word, then are he my disciples indeed, and he shall receive the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They stood back and said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, he shall be made free? But the gospel is unlike everything the world has ever known. The offended God pardons freely. Oh, isn't this incredible? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, if we were reconciled, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God by the death of his son, says Paul. And that is true. God has done it all while you and I were still in enmity. Not, not merely not suggesting it to him, but utterly opposed to him and hating him. He did it all then, and he's done it perfectly, and he gives it to us freely. We preach. 
the wisdom of God. That's God's way of doing it. It's the way God has adopted. It's the way that God has done it. He did, he has sent forth his son, and the son has come. And he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And he went and gave himself passively to the suffering and the agony and the shame of the cross that he might atone for our sins and reconcile us to God. And in him God is offering you tonight freely forgiveness of sin, a restoration of the right relationship between you and himself. He'll give you a new life, a new nature, a new start. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll make you an heir. And he'll give you a glimpse of the glory that he has awaiting you. That's the gospel, my friend. It's God's, God's power, God's glory, God's wisdom. Oh, the tragic folly of trying with you a little mind to take in that. There's only one thing for us to do, my friends, having thus tried to look at it inadequately. We just must needs get down before God and say, Lord God, forgive me my pride of intellect. My foolish pride in my feeble understanding. I see now it's thy way, not man's. I don't understand, but I believe. Grant it me. Give me this spirit that will enlighten me and enable me to believe. Confess your utter dependence upon him. And he will give you this spirit. And you will see the truth. And you will know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord of glory. And that he came in order to die. That you might be forgiven. That you might be made a child of God and an heir of God. And be prepared for the glory that yet awaits you. That's the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom. But thank God it's been revealed. And there it is, in Jesus Christ. Fly to him, just as you are, and depend entirely upon him, and be ye saved.